0: All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Salt Company tonight. It is great to be with you. Mackenzie, happy birthday as well to Tim. That was great. But Mackenzie, it's also your birthday. That was hilarious. (laughs) Oh, Madison. I don't know. I can't tell from here. I can't tell. The twins. Okay. Guys, welcome to Salt Company. If this is your first time, welcome. My name is Stephen and I am the Salt Company director here. We are starting a new series tonight. It is In the Life of Abraham. So grab your Bibles. We will be in Genesis tonight. Genesis, thankfully, is super easy to find. First book of the Bible, just a couple pages in. Genesis 12, Life of Abraham. Guys, the reason why we are looking at the life of Abraham the next couple of weeks is because Abraham is one of the most central figures of our Bible. In the New Testament, there are 66 references to Abraham. And the way we can, if we can understand who Abraham is, what God has to teach us about his life, then we will be able to understand some of the foundational elements of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to have a faith in Christ. So, Abraham is where we will be at as you're turning there. I have said this several times. I'm from Des Moines, 515 Southeast Polk, let's go. Grew up on a dead end. Dead ends are awesome because it's like having a second driveway. You know what I'm talking about? Any other dead end people out here? Aaron, yes, they are amazing. Got one in the back there. Dead ends are great. You could ride your bikes out there, all of that. I'm going to blow your mind for everybody that didn't live on a dead end about something that has to do with dead ends. When you drive into a dead end, you stop. Mind blowing, thank you for that You know, pity laugh. Was that Ellie? Thank you, I, I needed that. That really helped me there. Guys, mind blowing, actually it's very obvious. Dead ends, the way dead ends work is you drive in and you stop. Whatever's going into the dead end stops there. You got, if you wanna leave, you gotta reverse. In contrast to a drive, like a, a through road, you know, not a non-dead end. Would you call that a through road? I don't know. Jacob, is that a through road? That is the best word that I could think of today, a through road. Uh, through roads you drive through. It's not a dead end. You don't stop wherever you're going. It's going through. Now, what we're going to see in the life of Abraham tonight is God gives him a promise. And God's desire is that Abraham would not be blessed by this promise and be a dead end. That he wouldn't be a cul-de-sac, but that he would be a through road. And that through Abraham, he would receive this this blessing and it would flow through him to others. One pastor named John Piper talks about this passage in Abraham and he says, God blessed Abraham not to be a blessing cul-de-sac, but to be a blessing conduit. One that blessing flows through. So that's what we're going to see tonight. And ultimately, we're going to come to the question of, will you be a blessing cul-de-sac or will you be a blessing conduit? One who is blessed by God, but then that blessing flows through you to others. Will you, like Abraham, be a blessing conduit or a blessing cul-de-sac. So Genesis 12, like I said, is where we're going to be at. That is where essentially the story of Abraham starts. In Genesis 12, at this point, he is referred to as Abram. So I'm going to call him Abraham, Abram, all night, go back and forth. At some point in his life, God changes his name. Same for his wife, Sarah. In our story, she will be referred to as Sarai, but I'll call him both Sarah and Sarai but we're gonna look at the life of Abraham. And what we are going to see is that God is going to use him in a great way, but it's not because Abraham was great, but instead that he was an ordinary man who committed himself to an extraordinary God. And because of that, God used him to be someone that is blessed and that blessing goes through. So we're gonna look at the whole chapter of chapter 12, and we're gonna kind of work through it in four parts. First, the call of Abraham, Second, the promise to Abraham. Third, the failure of Abraham. And fourth, the faith of Abraham. Promise or call, promise, failure, faith. Call, promise, failure, faith. All right, the call of Abraham. Let's start in chapter 12, verse one. Read to verse nine with me. (coughs) Here's how it goes. Don't you love when people clear their throats and mics? So gross. I had some phlegm. Had to get the phlegm out. All right, verse one, the Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the site of Shechem at the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, he built an altar to the Lord there and he called on the name of the Lord, Then Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. Okay, the call of Abram. So we see in verse one, God comes to Abram. It says this, the Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives, your father's house to the land that I will show you. God shows up to this guy named Abram and calls him. And the call involved two things. It involved both him leaving something. So in Abram's case, it meant leaving the land that he was in, your relatives, your father's house, to and to somewhere, to the land that God would show you. This is the call of Abram, where God calls Abram to leave and to go. So who is Abram? At this point in our Bibles, 12 chapters in, we know very little about Abram. In fact, we know only what is two paragraphs above chapter 12 in chapter 11. That's all we know about Abram. So basically, if you look at 1127, here's what we know about Abram. His dad's name's Terah. He's got a brother Nahor, a brother Haran. His brother Haran has a son named Lot. Haran died in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. All right, good to know. Abram and Nahor got married. Abram's wife's name's Sarai. Nahor's wife's Milcah, good to know. Uh, The daughter of Haran must be a different Haran because that would be kind of messed up. Because if you didn't catch, I know there's a lot of names here, Nahor and Haran are brothers. Nahor marries Milcah, the daughter of Haran. Probably a different Haran. Again, be jacked up. Sarai was unable to conceive. She did not have a child, verse 30. Then they move. Terah moves his family. Terah takes Abram and his grandson Lot, his daughters-in-law. They move from Ur to Haran in the land of Canaan. And then Terah dies there. That's what we know about Abram so far. Here's a guy, he's married to Sarai. His brother dies. He semi-adopts his nephew Lot. At some point in their life, they move from Ur and move to Haran. Other places we find out that they're not God followers. They're actually pagan worshipers. Joshua 24 too, tells us that him and his brothers worshiped other gods. And here he is at the age of 75, living in the land of Haran. And you could say at this point in his life, he's basically a nobody, basically lived a mundane, average, normal, somewhat meaningless life. Him and Sarah are at the end of their life, at the age of 75, and Sarah's a little bit younger, but they're at the end of their life and they have basically lived a very normal, pagan, obscure, meaningless life. No one will remember them. They are living a very forgettable life. The most eventful thing in Abram's life at this point is basically he moved once from Ur to Haran. Good job, Abram. Got married to Sarai, but they have no kids. Nobody will remember them. They have basically lived a normal, pagan, forgettable life. And this is who God shows up to. I mean, think about your grandparents who are 75. It's like, man, okay, they are coming to the end of their life. And it's at this point that God steps in to Abram's life. And he says, hey, go leave your land, leave your relatives, leave your father's house and go to the land that I will show you. That is who Abram is. He is a nobody from nowhere with really nothing to show for his life. And God shows up to him and says, I'm going to use you, go. So what could make Abram and Sarah move? At this point in their life, right? They're so settled. They're basically in their minds in, in, at the end of their life, what would make them move? It's the promise of God that they received. Look at this second part of our passage, the promise of God. So start back in verse one. It says, the Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Essentially, there's three elements to this promise that God gives to Abraham. The first element was the promise of land. So at the end of verse one, it says, go into the land, I will show you. And then verse seven, what does it say? It says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So the first element of the promise is the promise of land. Now, why does that matter? Why would that be something that would be so compelling that you would move your whole life and follow this God that you've never worshiped? Well, land represented a place of security. It's a place of home, a place of belonging, of peace. And imagine what your life would be be like without land. The same level of insecurity that you would have if you didn't know where you were gonna sleep tonight would be the sense of insecurity Abram and Sarah would have without land. Land is incredibly important. It's this, like I said, a place of security, of rest, of peace, of comfort. It's home the same things that you feel when you get home is what land represents. So the promise of land is a promise for security, a promise for peace. The second element to the promise is a name. Look at verse two, it says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. Nation and name go hand in hand. Think about this, in order for, to be remembered in Abram's mind, in order for his name to continue, what would he need? He would need a child and a spe- specifically a son to carry on the family name. And here Sarah and Abram are at 75 years old and they're like, we have no child, we have no heir, we have no one to pass our legacy on to, we're gonna be forgotten we are going to basically have lived a meaningless life in their mind. So the promise of a name is a promise for significance, a promise to have a meaningful, worthwhile life that mattered. So Abram gets these two promises, a promise for land, security, and peace, a promise for a name, significance, and a meaningful life a life that, hey, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. Your offspring will come and through that, your name will continue and you will have significance in a life that mattered and has meaning. That's promise one and promise two. Promise three is the promise to be a blessing. Abram would be a blessing. Look at verse three. It says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God comes to Abram and says, I will bless you. I'll give you land, I'll give you a name, but I don't want that blessing to stop with you. I don't want you to be a blessing dead end. I want that blessing to flow through you to all the peoples on earth. Just like that pastor John Piper was saying, I want you to be a blessing conduit, not a blessing cul-de-sac. Abram is receiving the blessing of God to be a blessing to the world. Now, why does that matter? Why does God need to bless all the peoples of the earth? Why do all the families of the earth need to be blessed through Abram? If you go back, you don't need to, but if you were to go back to Genesis one, at the very beginning of our Bibles, just a few pages back, you would see that there is a God who created heaven and earth. And as he created everything, he created it according to his design and to his purpose. And it was under his sovereign rule. And as it was under his sovereign rule, he said, it is good and it's operating the way it ought to. But God in the pinnacle of his creation created humans to be image bearers, to reflect his glory and to be in relationship with him. However, humans rejected that relationship with God in Genesis 3 rejected the God who created them, rejected his sovereign rule over their life. And as a result of that rejection by Adam and Eve, sin and death and brokenness entered into our world. That is why we need a blessing. That is why we need a God who would bless all people on earth because currently we are under the curse of sin. We are guilty and under condemnation for the sin that we have committed by rejecting God as the creator and sovereign ruler over our life. So we need a blessing. We need a solution to that brokenness. Now, when God is going through and assigning the consequences and curses to Adam, to Eve, to the serpent who sinned against him or the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve to sin against God, there is a little glimmer of hope that's tucked in there. In Genesis 3.15, when God is cursing the serpent, he says to the serpent, I am going to bring an offspring, the, the seed of a woman who will crush your head and you'll bite his heel, but he will crush your head. Meaning there is somebody, God in Genesis 3.15 promised that there is somebody, an offspring that he is going to bring into the world that would ultimately defeat sin and death, the serpent and the consequences for the penalty of our sin. And from that moment on, from Genesis 3, the rest of the Bible is about how God brings in this offspring into the world to restore the broken world back to its original design, how God intended it to operate and flourish. And to this family, Abram's family, he is saying the offspring that I have promised in Genesis 3 is going to come through your family. He's saying this blessing that I promised to bring an offspring into the world, to reverse the effects of sin, it's going to come through your family. And because of that, you will be a blessing to all peoples. When this offspring that is coming, comes through your family and reverses the effects of sin. So Abram receives the promise of land. He receives the promise of of having a name. He receives the promise that he will be a blessing, that God will use his family to bring the offspring that he promised in 315 into the world to reverse the effect of sin. That is the promise that God made to Abram. So we've seen the call of Abram. We've seen the promise to Abram. But here's the question. When you make a promise, what has to happen for that promise to be fulfilled? somebody has to be committed to it and to see that promise come through. So a couple of weeks ago, I promised Isla and Jack at some point in this summer, I will take them to the zoo because I kind of have a freakish love for zoos. I think they're the coolest place. I could go every weekend. I don't, Omaha, is that the closest zoo here? Okay, so Omaha, four hours away. We are going to do that as many times as we can, but I've at least promised one time I could stand, watch gorillas all day. Me and Jack will have a good time. Isla will go see flamingos, it will be great. I love zoos, but what has to happen in order for that promise to be fulfilled? Me as a dad, have to, I have to be, remain faithful to that promise to see it go through. When you make a promise, in order for a promise to be fulfilled, somebody has to be faithful in, in order for that promise to be fulfilled. So here's the question whose faithfulness does this promise rely on? This promise that God made to Abram, whose faithfulness does it rely on? I think what we often do when we hear these stories of the heroes of the faith, we often think, man, Abram must have just been this extraordinary person. This most, this, he must have been incredible, chosen by God, father of the faith, he must have been extraordinary. And what we can begin to think is that the promises of God rely on Abram. But here's what happens when we think that. As we dig into the story of Abram, we are going to start to see a shocking reality about this man. That this man, though he was a good guy, he made some good decisions, there actually was a side of him where it was marked by deep failure and weakness. And if we think this promise relies on him, we will be shocked. So here's what I mean. Look at verse 10. We'll see the failure of Abram here. Here is who Abram is. Verse 10, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they'll say, This is his wife. They'll kill me, but let you live. Please say you're my sister so it will go well for me because of you. And my life will be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. So the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. He treated Abram well because of her. And Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with a severe plague because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her as my wife. Now here is your wife, take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. On the heels of the call of Abraham, on the heels of the promise to Abraham, what do we see? The very next story is a story of failure by Abraham, a story of cowardness. Abraham is marked by great cowardice in this story. He was a straight up coward. What happened? A famine comes in the land. He looks at Sarah, his wife, who apparently is beautiful. And he thinks, you know what? We're gonna get to Egypt. These guys are gonna kill me and take you. So Sarah, here's what I need you to do for me. I need you to tell them you're my sister so that when we get there, they won't kill me and my life will be spared on your account. And so sure enough, they get to Egypt and what happens? That exactly what Abram thought would happen, happens. They see Sarah, they think she's beautiful. They take her in to Pharaoh. Abram, they think is her brother and he's good to go. And Sarah is put in an incredibly vulnerable and dangerous and compromised position for the sake of Abram. So that Abram wouldn't wouldn't risk his own neck while they were in Egypt. Because I don't even have a category for what Abram is doing here to be so afraid that I'd be willing to place my wife in a dangerous and vulnerable position where she is sleeping with another man. What kind of low life husband would put his wife in that vulnerable position? Like, I I don't even know, like for me, it's like, I'm not even the greatest husband on earth, but I feel like I would never do that. Like what kind of guy would put his wife in a vulnerable position where she is sleeping with another man because he's afraid of what might happen to him? This is a moment of extreme cowardice by Abraham. And look what's happening to him while she's sleeping with Pharaoh. What's happening? Verse 16, he's treated well because of her. Abram is living it up while his wife is in the harem of Pharaoh in an incredibly vulnerable, dangerous, compromised position. And we read that, and what is even more shocking is this will not be the only time Abram messes up. He will do some things right, but more often than not, he is exposing his sin, his weakness, his brokenness over and over again in his life. Doing things that we're like, what? How could somebody who is chosen by God to be the one that the promised offspring comes through do that? What are you doing, Abraham? And it leaves us wondering again, that original question, how would God choose him? How could God use this guy to bring the promise into the world? It becomes very obvious that this promise that God gave didn't rely on Abraham. So then the question is, well, then who does the promise rely on? Ultimately, what we will see is that the promise of God doesn't rely on Abraham coming through, but instead on the one who came through Abraham. Abraham. Ultimately, the promise that God makes to bless all people through Abraham doesn't rely on Abraham coming through, but instead on the one who would come through Abraham. You see, God makes this promise to somebody who's from nowhere, to somebody who doesn't really have anything, and to somebody who has made a lot of mistakes and will continue to make a lot of mistakes, But God by choosing this man is showing that God can use Abraham in a great way, not because Abraham is extraordinary, but because he was committed by faith to an extraordinary God. That he heard this promise and believed by faith that God would bring it about through the offspring that he promised. And that God would one day leave his heavenly homeland And that one day his name would be despised and dejected. And that one day he would not be blessed, but instead would be cursed on a tree. That he would be the great bridegroom who left his heavenly homeland and come to earth, the land that he created to redeem for himself the people that he desperately loved. Guys, you see, Jesus is the offspring who left the homeland of heaven, whose name was despised and dejected and mocked, who wasn't blessed but was cursed and who was the great bridegroom that we needed, who came to earth and died for us so that we could have a relationship with God. It's in Jesus that God's promise was ultimately fulfilled. And what we find in Jesus is the exact opposite of Abram where Abram looked at Sarah and said, hey, my life will be spared on account of you and then put his wife in, a, in harm's way. Jesus instead looked at his bride, the church, and said, hey, your life will be spared on account of me and then put himself in harm's way for us. Our life was spared on the account of Jesus who went to the cross to die for us so that we could have life. Jesus experienced death so that we could have life, so that we could experience the blessing that came through the family of Abraham. But not only we experienced the blessing of salvation that's in Christ, but that that blessing would flow then through us to other people. You see, Abraham, like I said, was used in a great way by God, not because he was extraordinary, but because he committed himself to an extraordinary God. He was a very ordinary man. From nowhere, he was nobody, and he had done some pretty jacked up things. But by faith, he committed himself to a great God whose promise to bring an offspring to save the world fueled his life to be a blessing to others. And the question for us tonight is, will you be a blessing cul-de-sac or will you be a blessing conduit? As one who has seen the great God that we have, who promised to bring about salvation through the great offspring of Abraham, the true bridegroom who would put himself in harm's way so that we could have life. Will you commit to him by faith and be a blessing conduit? One who has been blessed by Christ to then bless others or will you be a blessing cul-de-sac?" You see, what produces blessing cul-de-sac, I think is a tendency for us to try to be the hero of our own story. We're gonna see Abraham is a part of all of his stories. It's the stories of Abraham. But very rarely is he the hero of those stories. In this story, who saved Sarah? Well, ultimately it was God intervening by bringing a plague on Pharaoh's family. We're gonna see in a couple of weeks who ultimately brings a son, the, uh, the next offspring, Isaac, for Abraham and Sarah. It's God. All the while, Abraham and Sarah are trying to take matters into their own hand. We're gonna see in three weeks from now, who provides a ram so Isaac isn't sacrificed. It's God. Every step of the way, though it's a story that involves Abraham, he is not the hero of his own story. But what makes him a hero of the faith is that he put his faith in the hero of the story. The story that there is a God who loves you and created you. And though we have all rejected him, he brought redemption into our world. And now we have the hope that one day he will restore a broken world back to its original design and that we will be in his family and he will be our God. That is the great story that God is inviting you into. And it's not because you are extraordinary that you can be a part of it. But like Abraham, you are an ordinary person. But what is required to be used by God is to humbly say, God, I commit to you in faith. I commit to you as an extraordinary God to use me a very ordinary person. To be one who is not only blessed, but to be a blessing to others. Because this is the life of Abraham, a very ordinary man who committed himself to an extraordinary God. And because of that, God used him in an extraordinary way to shape our faith. Will we likewise see our lives as very ordinary, not being about ourselves, but being about the hero of the story and live for his glory and for the good of others, not being blessing cul-de-sacs, but being blessing conduits receiving the blessing of Christ and then letting that flow through us and not being ones who the blessing of Christ ends with us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story of Abraham and of Sarah and the promise that you gave to them. God, that as the chaos and darkness was swirling around them in the world, that you stepped in and intervened and promised to them that through their family, you would bring the great offspring of Abraham who would leave his home and come to us, whose name would be despised, who would be cursed, but also that we could have life in him. God, I pray that we would be people that in light of that one, it tried to make our life about ourselves. We wouldn't try to be the hero of our own story, but instead we would see the significant role that we get to play in the story that's not about us, but a story about a great God who redeemed a people for himself. God, I pray that we won't allow fear and security to move us to a place of thinking that we can't be used by you. But instead, we would see an example here of you using a very ordinary, broken, messed up man who committed himself to the promise of God, who committed himself to an extraordinary God and was used by you. Not because there is anything he brought to the table, but because he committed himself in faith to the great God that we have. Amen.